get started. You all should know that next week we're having the Prophecy Conference starting... Um, did you ever get that thing I sent you on the email? On the announcement? Yeah, I did. I emailed it to you. Yeah, you ought to have Grace check it out. Anyway, Prophecy Conference next week starting uh, Wednesday night. Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night at 7.30. Friday night, we'll go from 7.30 to 8.30, take a break if anybody needs to take their kids or whatever, and then we'll have a question and answer session uh, till Tommy wears out. That would be about 2 in the morning, so maybe we ought to uh, not <coughs> put it, make it last that long. Then on Saturday, we're going to have sort of a picnic. We're going to play some volleyball down here, whatever, start around 5 o'clock in the afternoon. We'll eat about 5.30. We're going to bring some grills down here. So bring whatever will feed you and your family and uh, whatever you want to cook out, hamburgers, hot dogs, whatever, we'll cook that here. And on top of that, bring the other stuff. Anything we need to add to that, Louise? Desserts? I didn't think we really needed to remind this crowd about desserts. Okay, so we'll look forward to, to that. That's going to be fun. Anything else? Seems like there was something else that I needed to announce. Was there another? I guess that's it. Okay, now that we've gotten the announcements out of the way. This I recall to mind and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself also in the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Casting all your cares upon Him, because He cares for you. Before we begin our study of God's Word, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come together in fellowship around the teaching of your word, and we pray that under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, we will have the objectivity to see how these things apply to our own lives, that we may be challenged by the truths of doctrine. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bible with me to this third chapter of James. James chapter 3. Moving on in the argument of James. Now, remember, James is writing primarily to teach us how to handle the tests of life, tests of doctrine, so that we can advance to spiritual maturity. John, I'm going to have some major testing here if we don't turn that fan down a little bit. John's got quite a job. He's got to adjust the fan to just the right speed so it doesn't tick. And so it doesn't blow the pages of my Bible around. James writes, now it's ticking. <laughs> it's going to be a test for you tonight, John. James is writing to teach us what we need to do in order to handle the tests of doctrine. The theme is set forth in the first chapter, verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy, my brethren, because... 
or count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its maturing result that you may be spiritually mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So James is addressing the believer's response to tests in life. He organizes his material around three basic points, as we have seen, which are covered in um, verse 19 of chapter 1. Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This forms a three-point outline for this epistle. And we have spent the last several months analyzing the section beginning in 121 down through the end of chapter 2, which focuses on the uh, theme being quick to hear. Not just hearing anything, but listening to doctrine. Being ready, making doctrine a priority in your life. And as James says in verse 23, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face and then in a mirror and then ignores what he sees. So we are to become appliers of the word. True hearing implies application. Now, that section concluded with the section on faith and works at the end of chapter 2, and now we shift to the second division in the chapter, being slow to speak. So the subject of chapter 3, from 3.1 down through 3.18, is going to revolve around self-discipline in the arena of speech and the use of the tongue and avoidance of the sins of the tongue. The first subject of the, this epistle, being quick to hear, was a positive command, but the second two, being slow to speak and slow to anger, are negative and deal with self-control in the believer's life in relation to the sin nature. So let's begin chapter, one, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. New American Standard reads, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, we'll just stop there tonight and take some time to look at the passage and see exactly what it says. Remember, the first step in accurate interpretation is having an accurate translation. And since this was written in the original Greek, uh, written originally in Greek, we need to take the time to look at what it says in the Greek. It begins with a prohibition in the Greek. It's a compound of the negative may plus the verb genomai. In the present passive imperative. Now, genomai by form, does not have an active voice form. It's, it's what is called a, a, um, a deponent verb, which means that it is passive in form, but it is active in meaning. So in terms of being a, uh, a verb, in terms of its, uh, it, it's an active verb in the sense that it is the individual that makes a decision as to whether he is going to teach or not. The negative may indicates that this is a prohibition. This is one of the strong, a stronger word for a negation than ooh. And genomai means 
not to become something, usually becoming something you're not already. So if you're not a teacher, let not many of you. And that's kind of an awkward translation. I think it should be better translated, do not let many of you become. Do not let many of you become. Now we need to stop a minute and understand what it means when it's a present imperative. Now, the present tense normally emphasizes continual action. The imperative means that this is a mandate for the spiritual life. As an imperative, it is addressed to the volition of James' readers, and by application, it's addressed to every believer in the church age. It includes the the negative may, it means it's a prohibition. Now we have to ask the question, what is the sense of this prohibition? A present imperative of prohibition has two meanings. First of all, it can mean to stop doing something already in progress. Secondly, it can refer to just a general prohibition which makes no comment at all about something that uh, about whether the action is presently going on. The first is stop doing something that you're presently doing, that is presently going on. And the second is just a general mandate. Now this is the second. This is just a general prohibition for the spiritual life. It does not necessarily imply that that uh, this was taking place or that, that he needed to stop this, although that definitely could be. And But James is pointing out one of the problems that comes up in handling testing. The subject is many teachers and should be translated, and the word there is didaskaloi, which is the main word in the Greek for a teacher or for an instructor. And one thing we need to understand in terms of isagogics or background for this particular section is to go back to the okay the scroll on here is a little fuzzy looking so backing it's rolling the wrong way okay Background. James is the first epistle written in the New Testament. It's written between 40 and 44 A.D. It is written before Paul writes any of his epistles. Therefore, it is written before the mystery doctrine is revealed. It is written before any of the uh, mandates are, are revealed concerning the structure, organization of the local church. It is written before any information has been revealed about spiritual gifts. It's written very early, so it's a mistake to read certain technical meanings from the later pastoral epistles back into James, because James is still writing in the context of a very Jewish situation. Let me remind you of what we saw back in chapter 2. He says if a, in verse 2 of chapter 2, if a man comes into your assembly, he does not use the word ecclesia, which is the word for church. He uses the word synagogues, which is the word for synagogue. He is still operating within a very Jewish context 
where the, the Christians were beginning to separate out from the synagogues, but they were still conducting their worship services in a manner that was very similar to a synagogue. And the way this was conducted was usually there would be a main teacher who would come and he would present whatever it was that he was studying. But then there was a time of informal teaching within the congregation where different people could stand up and teach on whatever subject they wanted to. The Apostle Paul took advantage of that system in the synagogues when he was traveling around the, the uh, Greek Empire. He would go to Ephesus, and the first thing he would do is to go to the synagogue. And then after the rabbi had taught, they would give an opportunity to anybody in the congregation to teach, and Paul would stand up and start explaining that Jesus of Nazareth had come and that he was the Messiah who had gone to the cross and died as a, as a substitute for the sins of the world. So this was a standard operating procedure, and they just carried this over in this early stage of the church. This is before there was full revelation given regarding the spiritual gift and the role and function of the pastor-teacher. And so many people would just stand up because they thought they had something to say. Now, this happens in a lot of churches, and it happens for a lot of different reasons. And part of the corrective is given right here in James chapter 3. It's a warning to those who think that they have something to say and want to get involved in, in teaching the Scriptures when they really don't have any training for it. The warning is, do not let many of you become teachers. And we have to ask the question in context, why does James include this? Why does he put this shift in here in the middle of this discussion on how to handle testing and trials? Well, in the previous section, we have seen that there is a tendency in his hearers to emphasize the accumulation of academic knowledge instead of application of that knowledge. They stopped short of application so that when the pastor-teacher communicated... When the pastor-teacher communicated, it goes to the Holy Spirit who makes it understandable as pneumaticos doctrine, then we exercise volition and it comes into the outer lobe of the mentality of the soul. This is this blue sphere, that is the noose, where it becomes gnosis. Now that's as far as it went. It became academic knowledge. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8.1, Knowledge, that is gnosis, not epinosis, but gnosis puffs up. Gnosis makes arrogant. And this was the typical response of young, immature believers is to start accumulating a lot of knowledge of Scripture. Somebody teaches the doctrine of suffering. Somebody teaches the doctrine of testing. And they begin to understand these things academically. But they don't transfer it into the uh, inner lobe of the soul as epinosis. They have no maturity. And like... Uh, immature people or want to do, they begin to want to show everybody how much they know and start uh, butting into everybody else's business and trying to teach everybody else how they ought to be handling trials when they haven't gone through the maturing process themselves and they have not converted this into epinosis. And this is one way that people tend to assert their own self-importance and build themselves up. They're impressed with how much they've learned, and so they want to impress other people with how much they've learned and how, how well they can help other people handle the adversities in their lives. So they immediately get into the sin of judging other people. They look at someone across the congregation, and 
they see some test or some situation in their life and they're not handling it the way they think they ought they should so they immediately want to get involved and stand up and start telling them how they ought to run their life and this operates from a position of weakness because it flows from arrogance and you see this a lot especially from uh seminary students and young people who want to go into ministry they're they're learning a lot of doctrine they're growing very rapidly in their academic knowledge and they just want to tell everybody else uh, how to do it because they've just learned this and they're impressed with their own knowledge. And this really trips up a lot of people and gets them into a lot of trouble uh, in the meantime. So James warns them off. He says it's very dangerous to put yourself into the position of being a teacher, whether it's a formal position as a pastor teacher or whether it's a more informal position such as a Sunday school teacher or a lay teacher or just wanting to put yourself in the position of teaching someone else how they ought to run their life. You know, you don't have to stand up in church to do that. You can wait until after church and go up and you can find some very uh, uh, sanctimonious way to talk to somebody and find out what's going on in their life and then start telling them how they ought to handle all their problems. And so James says, if you do this, you need to know something, and, uh, and that is that you're going to get involved in a lot more divine discipline. So the first part of the verse should be translated, do not let many of you become teachers. Why? James understands by way of the revelation that's given to him is that the gift of teaching is going to be restricted to a few people. It's not something that just anybody can do. Now, this is a concept that has unfortunately been lost in recent generations. We've been terribly infected by the democratic ideal in the local churches where we think that everybody, because of their priesthood, ought to have the right to stand up and teach. Now, you don't see that around here, and hopefully you never will, but you certainly see that in some churches. I know I attended a church for a while when I was in seminary, where you go to a Sunday school class, and they always divided these Sunday school classes up in terms of age groups. And you had your young marrieds and your older marrieds and your singles, and everybody was categorized. And you would come to class, and there was some nice, wonderful uh, couple there who was in charge of the class. And they would sit down. You had your Sunday school quarterly, because the Baptists don't teach people enough for them to be able to develop their own lessons. I probably shouldn't have said that. I'll get in trouble for running down the Baptists now. <laughs> so they, they become slaves to their Sunday school quarterlies, and they, they come in there and they sit down and they say, okay, so-and-so, why don't you read, open your Bible and read this verse. And then they'll go to somebody else and say, okay, now you read this verse. And they'll come back, okay, to the first guy, Bill, what does that mean to you? And of course, you know, it was all Bill could do to even read the Scripture. He didn't make it too well academically after the seventh grade, and he just stumbled through it. He didn't have a clue what it means. He's only been a believer for maybe a year or two, and he's been carnal most of that time. So he doesn't say anything worthwhile, and they go to the next person, and they say, now, Susie, what do you think that meant? And it just goes on like that, and everybody shares their ignorance, and they don't have any recognition for the fact that, there, that the Bible says that there are certain people who are A, given the gift of teaching, that's one gift, and B, given the gift of, of pastor-teacher. And this is a special spiritual gift which enables the individual who has that gift to study the Word of God and then to communicate it. It has two, a twofold aspect. It's not just 
a gift of gab. There's all kinds of people that can get up and talk for a long time and not say much of anything. There's even people who, in the natural abilities of, of life, have, have the ability to teach and communicate, and they can stand up, and if they've been under good doctrinal teaching for a while, they can even say something of substance. But the gift of pastor-teacher also involves the ability to get into the Word of God and to extrapolate the doctrines from the Word of God, all the principles of application, principles of theology, weave them together under a sound system of hermeneutics is based on a plain, literal uh, interpretation of Scripture, and then to take that and communicate it to people so that they can understand it and put it into practice in their lives, all, of course, under the uh, filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now, we live in an age when... uh, even in seminaries, the gift of pastor-teacher is not understood very much anymore. I don't think I was taught as much about it when I went through Dallas Seminary as I should have. And you get the idea that when you go out and you pastor a church, that there's many other people who can teach just as well. And they, the, the focus of being a pastor in the last 20 years has shifted from a man who is gifted to Uh, study the Scriptures and to teach the Scriptures to a person who's sort of the player coach. He's the chief executive officer of the local church, and so he's going to spend most of his time organizing people, planning schedules, planning programs, making sure you have the right people and the right job to do the right thing, and he's sort of this overseer of the congregation, and he might spend uh, 30 minutes a week uh, teaching on a Sunday morning, a little sermonette for Christianettes, but of course he's no longer even the worship leader because now they have some uh, young guy sitting at a synthesizer who is the uh, worship leader now. So the man who is trained in seminary, who should know the original languages of Greek and Hebrew, the man who has gone through four years of pro- professional training, intensive training, who should know the Word of God backwards and forwards and understands all the issues in theology, at least if he's gone to a good seminary. This man is not the man who does the teaching. Ninety percent of the teaching in many churches today is going to be conducted by lay people who have never been to seminary. Maybe they took a Bible college course here or there. They might have a little uh, something like that under their belt. But they don't have any formal training whatsoever, and yet they are the ones who are doing the brunt of the teaching, and it is the pastor who shows up on Sunday morning, and he preaches more than he teaches, and the rest of the, the, the teaching ministry is relegated to people in the congregation. I just think that's got everything so screwed up and backwards, it's, it's uh, not a surprise then that the church is in such a mess today in terms of understanding the Scriptures and understanding doctrine and theology. In fact, most pastors don't because in the average church you'll find a pastor, I've surveyed pastors on this, they'll spend maybe 60 or 70 hours a week at their job. And of that, they spend maybe 10 to 15 hours preparing that one message that they preach on Sunday morning. And Ten of those 15 hours are spent searching for uh, wonderful homiletic ways to communicate the the subject matter. They're spent looking for illustrations. 
They're spent doing everything else but getting into the original languages, studying the doctrine, and studying the theological issues involved. And it's amazing, the further some of these guys get from seminary, the dustier their Biblia Hebraica becomes, and the less use their uh, Greek New Testament becomes. So this is a real tragedy today, because the blind are usually leading the blind, and we've forgotten what the Scripture says about the importance of teaching and that there is a spiritual gift of teaching. Now, James warns them that not many should become teachers because they don't have the gift. Now, the interesting thing about the Scriptures is that just because you don't have the spiritual gift of teaching doesn't mean you're absolved from all responsibility of teaching the Scriptures. In any congregation of this size, we're only going to have a few people who have the ability to teach doctrine. We have a much greater need than that down in the um, Sunday school classes with the kids, and a lot of you have the ability to communicate what you've learned, and you should use it that way. There are a lot of things in Scripture that way. For example, some people have the gift of giving, but giving is part of the priesthood responsibilities of every believer. Some people have the gift of evangelism. But every believer is responsible to communicate the gospel to whomever comes into their periphery. So just because you're not gifted in an area, as you mature and learn the Word of God and learn doctrine, sometimes it's necessary for you to function in these other areas for the good of the local congregation. So James warns them, Do not let many of you become teachers, my brethren. And of course that emphasizes the fact that he is talking to believers. And then we have a perfect active participle of the Greek verb oida, O-I-D-A, which means to know. Now, this isn't the word we generally run across, which looks like this, gnosko, G-I-N-O-S-K-O. And it's important to take a moment just to analyze the difference between these two words. Gnoska means to come to know something. It emphasizes the process, especially when there's a distinction with oida. Oida indicates a fullness of knowledge. So here it is roughly comparable to the noun epinosis. It indicates a fullness of, of knowledge. For example, you see the contrast in John 8:55, and when we finally get there on Sunday morning, we'll see this in detail. Jesus says in a response to the Pharisees, "You have not known him." Speaking about God, he says, "You have not known him," and he uses the verb gnosko. He says, "But I know him, oida." indicating that the Pharisees have not come to know God, they have not been involved in the process of learning about God, but in contrast, Jesus said, claimed that he had intimate, full knowledge of God, oida. So here we see a shift. We have a, the verb is oida. It is a perfect, active participle. Now, oida always is found in the perfect tense, but it has a present tense meaning. It's an irregular verb in that sense. And as a participle, we have to define whether it's an adverbial or adjectival participle, and because it, it lacks the article, it is adverbial. 
And it is an adverbial participle of cause. And so it's, it's going to modify the main verb, do not become, in the sense of cause. So it should be translated, do not let many of you become teachers, my brethren, because you know something. You know something. And then we have, the English translates it that, the Hebrew, it's hot, I mean the Greek is hati, which indicates that you're getting ready to see a principle. You know something. You know that as such, we shall incur, and literally in the, in the Greek it is lambano, means to receive something. We shall receive judgment, krima, which indicates a sentence handed down from the Supreme Court of Heaven. We shall receive judgment, and this is uh, divine discipline from the Supreme Court of Heaven to the believer. We shall receive greater divine discipline. It's the um, comparative from mazon, meaning the larger or greater judgment. So this isn't just standard divine discipline, but indicates an increased level of divine discipline on someone who gets involved teaching and starts getting uh, involved in other people's business, trying to straighten people out and operating from a position of arrogance. So this takes us to a reminder of a very important principle in Scripture, and that is the doctrine of triple compound divine discipline for sins of the tongue. So hold your place in James 2, and let's turn over to Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 reads, Do not judge, lest you be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Now, this is the worst level of divine discipline and self-induced punishment that the believer can get involved with. It starts off with the believer getting involved in mental attitude sins. Almost every sin, I think, begins with some attitude rooted in arrogance. As soon as you commit a sin and you're out of fellowship, you begin to operate on uh, self-absorption, the first of the arrogant skills. The three arrogant skills, just to remind you, are self-absorption, then leads to self-justification. Self-justification then leads to self-deception. And self-deception feeds upon itself, develops an even greater level of self-absorption, and you just get caught up in this increasingly destructive pattern of arrogance. So this is the worst. It starts with these mental attitude sins of arrogance, and because the, this immature believer is caught up in how wonderful he is, how much doctrine he's learned, and how much smarter he is than everybody else, then he begins to um, judge other people. He starts making decisions about their life and their spirituality and how well they're applying doctrine and how ignorant they are. So he's motivated by arrogance. There may be some other elements of uh, jealousy or bitterness. Other types of uh, mental attitude sins can enter in, such as uh, uh, self-pity, guilt, uh, whatever it may be. But 
In this case, we're talking about somebody who just thinks they know the answers to all of life's problems, so he starts evaluating everybody else. And incidentally, this is the same word here, crema, forming a judgment, trying to operate in the place of God in this person's life. So the command is, do not judge lest you be judged. So, as we start off with this, you see somebody judging somebody else, and they move from mental attitude sins of arrogance into sins of the tongue, slander, malice, gossip. All of these are involved telling a lie about somebody else, misrepresenting somebody else. All of these things are very destructive. We need to keep our mouth shut just judging somebody else. So it starts off, we see somebody... Uh, fail a test, and so you start off judging them. They blow it pretty bad. You can't wait to straighten them out and tell them how they ought to handle their problem. So that starts it off with the sins of the tongue. This is level one, and you're going to accumulate divine discipline for that. Level two, you're going to get divine discipline for the mental attitude sin. This is for the sins of the tongue. You're going to get the second level of divine discipline for the mental attitude sins that motivated the judging. And then third, you are going to receive the discipline for the sin that you are judging. Notice verse 2, For in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured out to you. So you will receive discipline for the mental attitude sin, discipline for the sins of the tongue, and then you will receive discipline for every sin that you mention, whether true or not, will be brought back on your head. Now, this doesn't mean that the other person gets off scot-free. They still have to go through their discipline. But now you've intensified your discipline threefold, and you're under triple compound divine discipline. And this is a a major problem that you should avoid. And that's why James says, back in James 3, that do not let many of you become teachers, my brethren, because you know that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. And because he uses the word oida, it indicates that, that those he's writing to have been taught this principle, and James assumes that by this time this has been assimilated into their souls, they've metabolized it, and they should be able to apply this particular doctrine. He's just taught them about the importance of application. Now, before we go into verse 2, I want to stop and review the doctrine related to authority, the doctrine of spiritual authority in the local church. Point number one. Spiritual authority resides ultimately in the Word of God, and it is only derivatively in the communicator, the pastor-teacher. The pastor-teacher or the evangelist, those are the only two communication gifts that are still operational in the church age, derive their authority not because of who and what they are, but because of their message and the inherent authority in the Word of God. Remember, authority is always inherent in the very function of teaching, whether you're a piano teacher, whether you're a school teacher, whether you're a driver's ed teacher, whether you're teaching some workshop down at, 
at, uh, at, in the workplace, whatever it is, the teacher always has a position of authority. Now, this is something you ought to teach your kids from the time they start school all the way up, is that the teacher has authority. And whether the teacher is right or wrong, they are responsible to obey the teacher. And when that teacher is wrong, which is very rare in my opinion, they may be wrong in what they teach, but in terms of behavioral things, usually it's the kids that are wrong. I remember 30 or 40 years ago, kids got in trouble at school. Some of you who are older remember this as well. You got in more trouble at home, and the parents did not come running down to the school to try to straighten everybody out. And that's one of the problems with kids today and the problems with schools is that there's no authority orientation in the home. The parents don't have authority orientation, and they don't want their kids getting in trouble. Well, the kids often do get in trouble, and sometimes the authority's wrong. That always happens. There's always a little unjustified uh, authority or punishment in life, and we have to learn to deal with that. And you can start teaching your kids how to deal with undeserved uh, punishment at times just by those situations that you just forget it and you move on. You don't get involved in mental attitude sins. You don't try to uh, get back at the teacher, get involved in revenge motivation or anything else. You always show respect for the person in, or for the office, even if the person in the office is not worthy of respect. The same is true when it comes to the local church. The pastor has authority because of his position. Now, sometimes you may not agree with the pastor, but... That's his job, that's his role, and he is going to be held accountable to the Lord. So the first point, spiritual authority resides in the Word of God and in the communicator, the pastor-teacher. And there's also another level of authority in the local church that goes to the deacons to whom the pastor delegates responsibility for administration and the uh, everyday running of the local church. Point number two. Ultimately, authority is derived from the Word of God. That's where authority resides. It is simply delegated to the communicator, whether pastor, teacher, or evangelist. Point number three. The pastor teacher's authority is limited to his own congregation, though they don't all need, are necessarily under his face-to-face ministry. They may be on tapes, they may be today listening through the internet. At Paul's day, they weren't present. They were listening by way of a written epistle. The pastor's authority is limited to his own congregation, not to somebody else's congregation. Point number four, the limitation of the pastor's authority. The extent of the pastor's authority extends to the communication of doctrine. That's his job is to get into the Word of God, study the Word of God, extrapolate the principles of the Word of God, and then communicate it to the people. It is not the pastor's job to make sure that people are converting it from gnosis to epinosis. It is not the pastor's job to make sure that you are applying the things that are being taught. I've heard of some pastors who, after they teach a series on marriage, for example, everybody likes that, it seems to be so applicational, After the pastor gets through teaching on marriage, he'll watch the congregation and he'll see how a husband and wife interact and then he'll call them on the carpet for not applying what he just taught. Now that uh, has nothing to do with what the Scripture teaches about the pastor's authority. His authority lies in the realm 
of what is taught and what is communicated in the local church as far as the Word of God is concerned, but that's as far as it goes. It does not extend beyond the pulpit. Point number five. The Royal Family Honor Code. This is the protocol that governs the life of the believer. Every believer at the moment of salvation is adopted into the Royal Family of God. The Royal Family Honor Code demands authority orientation in the form of academic discipline whenever the pastor is teaching Bible doctrine. This means that people need to be courteous. They need to be quiet. They don't need to rummage around and rustle around and and distract other people who are trying to listen and understand what is communicated. So in essence, it just boils down to basically good manners, thoughtfulness of others, and showing respect for the teaching of the Word of God. So point number five, the Royal Family Otter Code demands authority orientation in the form of academic discipline and respect for the teaching of God's Word. Point number six, Ultimately, the issue in the local church is that the pastor is communicating the mystery doctrine of the church age so that the individuals in the congregation can understand it and metabolize it into their souls to advance to spiritual maturity. This means that just as the individuals in the congregation are growing, the pastor is also growing. It doesn't matter what congregation you're in, at some level... The pastor has to be advancing spiritually because the congregation can never advance beyond the spiritual maturity of the pastor. And so the pastor has to constantly make sure that he is filled with the Holy Spirit, studying the Word of God under the filling of the Holy Spirit, and that he is keeping his priorities straight by spending the majority of his time studying the Word of God so that he can accurately communicate it to the congregation. That is the pastor's job. This is derived from a couple of different passages in Scripture, but ultimately from just his title. Pastor comes from the Greek word, poimen, which literally refers to a shepherd. So there is an analogy here between the shepherd and sheep, and that is not a complimentary analogy, for at least for people in the congregation, and we've all been there. Uh, Sheep are dumb animals and they can't take care of themselves and they're constantly getting themselves in trouble. And so they have to have a shepherd watch over them in order to make sure that they don't go drink the wrong water that's bad for them or eat the wrong kind of plants that will make them sick. And the shepherd has to constantly watch over them and guide and direct them. This emphasizes two aspects, that the shepherd has a leadership role, and he has responsibility for the nourishment of the sheep. This is the primary issue in the metaphor of pastor. When Jesus was talking to Peter at the end of the Gospel of John, he said, Peter, do you love love me? Peter said, yes, Lord, I love you. He said, then feed my sheep. And three times they had that interchange. And the issue there is that it is the role of the pastor to teach the Word of God because that is the only nourishment for the spiritual life. And so pastors who are spending most of their time visiting the sick at the church, 
managing the congregation's different administrative functions, getting involved in all sorts of other church-related activities in minimum amount of time studying the Word of God is not fulfilling his divinely ordained responsibilities. Because when all is said and done, the spiritual growth of the congregation is dependent upon the kind of food that he serves from the pulpit. So he needs to be focusing on that. Now, no pastor is perfect. No pastor is going to teach everything 100% correctly because no pastor is inerrant. No pastor is speaking under the infallibility of inspiration. So every pastor is going to make mistakes. Every pastor is in a learning process. And every single pastor is going to have a problem with his own sin nature. And if you wonder if I have one, just ask my wife. (laughs) Every pastor has a sin nature, and the issue is to look past the sin nature and look at the doctrine, because that's the issue. One of the things that has happened in in the self-righteousness of the evangelical community is that we tend to put pastors on a pedestal, that somehow they are better than everybody else, and they're not going to commit sins like everybody else. And then as soon as they commit some uh, overt sin, especially one that shocks everybody, then everybody starts uh, pulling out their stones and trying to stone the pastor and running him out of town and doing everything they can to destroy the guy's life. And they they don't do that intentionally or overtly. They they cover it up with the idea that we want to help him get, get his spiritual life back, and it's Uh, just covered up with a lot of uh, pseudo-compassion and and a lot of of arrogance. But the pastor does have a sin nature. He will sin. And as long as he is continuing to deal with that, as the Scripture says, through confession and moving on and and, uh, putting that behind him, then that is not the issue and should not be the focus. However, if it gets to a point where a pastor is living under extended carnality or if he is communicating false doctrine, that's, those are the only two situations that I know of which authorizes a congregation to get rid of a So the pastor's job is to teach, and the pastor, the focus is to be on the doctrine that he teaches and not necessarily on his own personal life or personal failures because we all have those. And just as the sheep need to be treated in grace because they're going to blow it many times, uh, congregations need to learn to treat their pastors with grace and to realize they're going to make mistakes along the way as well because we're all in the process of advancing and growing to spiritual maturity. Now, it's inevitable that in any given congregation that people are going to at times really get crosswise with the pastor. Now, I hope that that doesn't happen with any of you, but if it does, your responsibility is to address that in privacy with the pastor, number one, and if that doesn't resolve things to your liking, then your job is to keep your mouth shut Don't get involved in sins of the tongue, running down the pastor, slandering the pastor, telling everybody how much better you understand things than the pastor and how bad he is. Your job is just to pick up and move on and go to a different church. And that's how it should be for for everybody in any given congregation. And I'm amazed at people I've run into over the years who've been at a doctrinal church 
and then they move somewhere in the country and, and they end up at a church where the doctrine is not so clearly taught and they immediately try to start straightening out the pastor, straightening out the Sunday school teachers and just creating a very divisive situation rather than keeping their mouth shut and just moving on. Once they go to the pastor and communicate privately with him, if he isn't willing to, uh, to listen or if he's already made up his mind or that's just not the policy or the theology of the church, then just quietly move on. Do not make an issue out of that. And I know a lot of people over the years who've created a, left a very bad taste in the mouth of people for doctrine because of the way they have used doctrine as sort of a sledgehammer or a baseball bat in various different congregations. Now, the pastor's authority is spelled out in various places in the Scripture. I think I'm down to about point seven. The pastor's authority is documented throughout Scripture. One of the clearest is in Hebrews 13:17, which reads, Keep obeying the pastors who are ruling over you and submit to their authority. For these pastors watch over you for the benefit of your souls as those who have to give an account. So the congregation is responsible to submit to the authority of the pastor and listen to their teaching. They may or may not agree with it all the time, but you have to... All of us have been in situations, myself included, where you've listened to a pastor and about the 50th time you've heard it, the light goes off and you finally understand it. But the first 49 times you heard it, you thought he didn't have a clue. You thought he was misrepresenting the Scripture. He didn't understand it properly. And all of a sudden, the light goes off and you realize, yeah, he really knew what he was talking about all along. So you have to submit to his authority. Don't run around and talk about how much better you know everything than he does and how much clearer it is to you than it is to him. You just keep your mouth shut and you just keep moving on because your spiritual life, after all, is a matter that's between you and the Lord. But too many people get caught up in the problem that James is addressing and they want to be instructors of everybody else because they've learned a little doctrine and so they want to go straighten everybody else out And one of the worst situations is when you go to some other church and you try to straighten the pastor out there because of what you've learned here. And I've heard of a few cases like that taking place since I've been here. And so you just have to relax and and, uh, not make an issue out of some of these things. Okay, James begins by saying, Do not let many of you become teachers, my brethren, because you know that... As such, you will receive a greater level of divine discipline. And then verse 2 begins with the introductory phrase in the Greek that looks like this, gar, G-A-R, and it always indicates an inference or a conclusion from what has already been stated. Sometimes it indicates a reason. So now he's going to explain why he has just given this mandate in verse 1. One of the reasons you shouldn't go around trying to straighten everybody else out is because we all stumble in many ways. Now look at that. That is not a very good translation. We all stumble in many ways. What does that mean to stumble? Here we have the Greek word pataio. P-T-A-I-O. And it means to trip, to stumble, to fall. But it is a synonym for this word. 
hamartia, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A, which is the basic word for sin, and it means to miss the mark. That's its root meaning. So when James says we all stumble in many ways, he is saying we all sin. We're all sinners. Everybody is going to blow it when they go through various tests. And so it's not up to those of you who think you figured it all out and have bloated yourself up with academic knowledge to make teachers out of yourselves and run around and try to straighten everybody else out. Because we all are going to fall in many different ways. And one of the things we're going to see in this entire chapter is his emphasis on the fact that we're not all perfect. And see, that's usually what happens in the sins of the tongue. What are some of the sins of the tongue? Well, we have gossip, slander, maligning, spreading the public lie about somebody, just telling lies, false witness, all of this. And this usually results because of some level of disappointment in somebody and so you are going to start straightening them out. The most subtle form of this is, of course, the prayer meeting request. We need to pray for so-and-so because they're... And that's how people often get involved in gossip. But the issue is we're all going to fail. See, we get disappointed in somebody because they failed. They failed either truly and objectively or they failed to live up to our own expectations, or they've disappointed us, or in some way uh, they've let us down, and so now we're going to gossip about them, malign them, and somehow by putting them down we're going to uh, lift ourselves up and make, make us feel better about ourselves, just another production from arrogance. So James is saying, reminding us that everybody sins, every one of us, and he says... He emphasizes the first person plural there, including himself. We all stumble in many ways. And then he goes further on to show that this involves even the sins of the tongue. If, first class condition, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, so in that situation, if, and we're going to assume that this, this is true, that there's a case where there's this one person who does not sin. Now, there's probably no such case, but this is a person who has, who is minus sins of the tongue. He has complete control over his tongue and there is no sin. If anyone in this case does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Now that is, I do not know why these translators always insist on translating telaios, T-E-L-E-I, O-S, as perfect. Perfect implies sinless perfection. And that's not the sense in the Scriptures. We never reach sinless perfection. Perfectionism is a terrible heresy. You're born with a sin nature and you're going to struggle with that sin nature till the day you die. Regeneration does not lessen its power. It just removes you from being a slave to your sin nature. But it is still just as strong, just as powerful and has all the same capacities it had as before you were saved. Telios refers to completion or maturity. And what James is saying is, 
If someone has complete mastery over the tongue, then they indeed have reached spiritual maturity. He is a spiritually mature individual able to control the whole body as well. That's the emphasis on bridle. He is able to bridle the entire body as well. So the greatest example of self-discipline is a person who is able to control their tongue and not get involved in various sins of the tongue. Now we'll stop there. We've just made our introduction to the sins of the tongue and we'll get back to see the dangers of that starting in verse 3 next time. And then all that can be involved in that in the remainder of the chapter with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at Your Word, to be reminded of how important it is to pay attention to what we say and how dangerous the sins of the tongue are. And especially as they reflect mental attitude sins in most situations. Now, Father, we pray that as we go throughout this week, You'll help us to assimilate the things that we have learned, that as they become metabolized in our soul, we'll be able to apply them under the filling of the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.